Welcome to Bloodhound Picks the Podcast, where we examine the obscure, despised, and purely independent that the genre has to offer. Now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Kyle. Josh. Hey, I'm Craig. Welcome to Bloodhound Picks. You guys want to talk about some homoeroticism today? Because we looked at Cannibal Man from 1973, which I actually really, really like this movie. So I've got like a little plot description here that says, after accidentally killing a taxi driver, Marcos, a young man who works as a butcher, wants to cover up his crime. Marcos's girlfriend, Paula, the only witness, wishes to go to the police, so he strangles her. Marcos finds himself killing others, including members of his family, as they become suspicious of his actions, butchering his victims' remains at his workplace in order to dispose of the bodies. That's actually pretty accurate, Wikipedia. So, there's not really a lot of information about this movie, which, you know, is probably why it's in this segment of our podcast. It, it, for some reason or other, it was put on the video nasty list, which is astounding. I'm assuming that it had a lot to do with the one shot of the throat slitting that where it kind of lingered for a lot longer than it needed to. But anyway, yeah, it was on the nasty list. It also went through some title changes because the cannibal man literally fucking makes no sense. The, I think the, the original title was Week of the Killer, which definitely makes more sense, even though the version that we saw didn't have like the days of the week inner titles or whatever. But I think that was part of the editing and it was removed for some reason, probably because going from Week of the Killer to The Cannibal Man makes no fucking sense. So now we got to get rid of our inner titles. There was another title that it went through that was The Apartment on the 13th Floor. Which, I guess, you know, the one guy, the rich guy, that must be where he lives because clearly Marcos does not live on the fucking 13th floor. That, you know, is about, I guess, the extent of the the sort of history. Oh, I guess one thing to, to note was it the marketing of the movie, if you can even call it that, they kind of tried to make it seem like it was Last House on the Leftish for some reason, too, which... Clearly, again, this has nothing to do with Last House on the Left in any way, shape, or form. But I guess being a Spanish film, uh, you know, you want to try to try to rip off the American way of, of doing things. I don't know. So we, we know kind of the basic premise of the film, but what is this movie really about? Because it's not about some guy murdering people, which I guess it's kind of funny that, that you know, he accidentally kills the cab driver. And that was after the cab driver was a douchebag. And also, you know, acted like he was going to, I don't know, rough up the dude's girl. So he accidentally kills him. And then as he's murdering these other people, it's almost funny in that he kind of had to. It's not like he started out as being this just completely unhinged lunatic, just murdering people. It's like first one was an accident and the next ones were out of necessity. But what is the movie really about? It's not about a guy killing people. There's a lot of homoerotic stuff. I'm going to 
highlight one scene that just, you know, it was all kind of subtextually done maybe for a little while, but then the scene in which the two dudes go to the country club and are swimming, playing with balls. I mean, it is just out of control. But, you know, that scene for sure, um, there's no subtext. It's just, here's two gay guys. He even thinks about it later. He does, yes. He has like the daydreaming bit where he's remembering swimming and playing with balls in a pool. One of the best scenes in the whole movie. Oh, it definitely is. It definitely is. Because I mean, honestly, at that point, it's seriously, I mean, there's no more subtext. This is, this is a, this is a a gay sort of fantasy film now that we're just not even going to attempt to cover up. What did, uh, I, I never did hear from either. Did you guys like this movie? Um, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of disappointed. I think I was definitely led astray by the Cannibal Man title, obviously. Yeah. And like, like I love the Jallo aesthetic. I like Jallo. So I was like getting excited and then it wasn't really exciting. And then it just, it, you know, my notes are like a descent of confusion, but I'm glad you started with it being homoerotic because at the end of my notes, it just says like homoerotic in capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was like the best. P- That's the irony is like, it, it's, I was excited to see a gritty, whatever weird horror movie. And it doesn't really deliver that. And then it gets into this homoerotic subtext towards the end or the middle. And that was the most compelling filmmaking aspect of it which was weird which was like okay this is obviously what this guy the director is interested in and you can tell by (laughs) like there's actual like talent going into that section i don't know it was very strange (laughs) craig um (laughs) i might have to fall in line with kyle on this um it was rough to get through in some parts for me i think it went in because it opens with a very graphic scene of them um cows going through a slaughter and you're seeing yeah. the throats getting slit and the blood Which draining is PETA's nightmare that was yeah. amazing and that going into it kind of i thought it would be like we were i guess like the movie is um promoted where it'd be kind of this last house on the left this very kind of gritty grindhouse movie and then it turns into whatever it is or it's almost a black comedy too yeah i, I mean i would disagree where I don't think initially the cab driver isn't even being a douchebag. He's just kind of saying, hey, could you not do that in my car? Stop trying to have sex in my cab. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely being a douchebag. Yeah. Though. I thought he was. Yeah. He's, he's saying what you're saying, but he is being an asshole about it. Yeah. It's also um, what I was going to say, which I'm sure Craig is going to agree with, is it, it, it was self-defense, though. The cab driver attacked his girlfriend. He attacked the cab driver, accidentally killed him. Could have totally went to the police and been like, look, this is what happened. It wasn't, you know, it was manslaughter. He might right. still go to jail, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But that leads <laughs> to a string of irrational murders. That you're just yeah. Like, okay. Well, the whole time, everybody just keeps saying, hey, I'll even help you cover it up and I help know. your story. And then he'll kill him. Yeah. But yeah. what I read, though, is that it's, and there, there's that comment about him saying because he's poor mm. that they won't believe it. And right. there's something about the Franco <laughs> regime that says it kind of 
it talks about a little bit and there's the whole thing where he has to show his id yeah that's what i was gonna say though like i read the franco regime subtext too but it doesn't really come up until that id thing other than other than the idea of classes because he's clearly poor and nestor his wannabe boyfriend is clearly (laughs) rich and is seems like he's writing like a novel and it (laughs) seems like he's superior because even at the end when he's like I saw you do the murders. Like I watched you through the window. You should just go turn yourself in. I don't know. He just had this weird superiority thing going on. Well, it also, my big thing that I guess kind of made me laugh each time is that it'd be this huge emotional scene, even like when he deals with the guy and holding the, I don't know how much we want to give away. I don't think it matters. (laughs) When he's holding the sharp object towards his throat, they start sobbing. And then he like gets up and he's like, okay, he just kind of goes about acting normal and it felt like how it was the whole a lot of the time like you would kill him and then you would see a little bit of unhinged but then the dialogue would be all hunky-dory type i feel like that's hard for us to say because i don't really know anything about the franco regime but i have a feeling that that is where they're going for the subtext is Mm. like the idea that murder is normal i guess maybe you know what i mean Mm because obviously in the fascist regime regime it would be that way where it's like well i felt like i had to kill this person and we're just gonna like cover this murder up and pretend like it never happened that's a big stretch because i don't really know (laughs) but i assume that maybe that's where part of that's coming from real quick too i just wanted as we were talking about when he he's threatening his boyfriend at the end that's the one though that now he realizes that he's a monster because you know oh my god i was i was gonna i actually thought about you know inflicting harm on my my new lover and then he goes and calls the cops like okay that's it i can't go i stepped i crossed the line this time and that was probably the least graphic of it that would have been the least graphic kills he yeah. smashes their heads in he does like all this stuff and then well, he yeah, does, he does all that stuff, and everyone else tells him to turn himself in. Yeah. Then this guy does, and I'm like, after the whole fucking movie <laughs> of unnecessary murders, yeah. like, you know what? I am gonna go turn yeah. myself in. I know he crossed the line that time. Uh, he, he does it to his fiance, his own brother. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And then this random like guy, brother's <laughs> wife, his brother's wife's dad. Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, him bringing fucking body parts to work, though. And yeah. then, like those guys stealing his fucking bag. I know it's, and then it's like, parts. dude, go get a bigger bag. Yeah, he's got that weird bowling bag. Yeah, and it's like, how much, how much body can you actually fit in there? I mean, fuck, it can't be that much. Maybe well, that's half, what. Half. Like I, the whole time I was sitting there, like, well, there's only at this point two bodies or three bodies. How long is this going to take of him? Maybe it would have worked better if it there was the day kind of interludes, like you were saying before, Josh. Where yeah, yeah. but it felt longer, like he'd been, you know, kind of putting these bodies away for. Yeah, I agree. I I think that the intertitle thing, whether they changed the title or not, from it was. It was weak of the killer, but uh, I feel like that should have been left in there. I mean, obviously, I'm pretty sure they took it out because the weak isn't really as important, I guess, even though to me it kind of would be. I think it would have made a little bit more sense, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I also think, yeah, weak of the killer would have been... I feel like Cannibal Man is the biggest obstacle to the whole film because that, like, leads you in with such a different expectation than what you're going to get. Yeah, it definitely does. Can we also talk about the fact that he has a whole rack of murder weapons <laughs> just in his living room 
that that like, they're like no it'll be okay like we can become friends and he's like yeah i'm just gonna grab this hammer yeah and talk about this but, that that and the fact that who has a fucking butcher knife that's that <laughs> gaudy huge you know like it just looks like something that is isn't real and nobody fights back with them ever yes. each time he's coming towards them, them slowly or slowly starting to strangle them and nobody thinks to his husband, try his anything his dad finds the body in the bedroom and then he just waits there to be yeah murdered. <laughs> yeah he literally just stands there like okay he's gonna he's gonna kill me i know it i'm just gonna stand here and wait i also don't understand well i guess he's he is gay so that's why but i was just like man you could have just hooked up with rosa at ernie's diner over here who's all in love with you and wants to make you dinner or whatever and everything would have been great yep and that definitely didn't happen and and you know that it did later um but i also that's i'm glad you brought that up because i was just thinking you know we're going like no rhyme or reason for what we're discussing but um (laughs) that scene at the end when she or near the end when she does just show up you know it's like she's just been hot and heavy to just have sex the entire movie and then she's not going to be denied this time and at that point, you know, after they after they do have sex, he could have let her go because she's just hypothesizing that he did, you know, that he's got bodies and killed people and whatever. But why does he end up killing her? Because now she's a threat to the relationship with the guy because, you know, she forced herself on him. And that's not about killing people to keep, you know, the illusion that he's not murdering people. He had to kill her because, you know... No, there's no more sex with girls for one. <laughs> and that relationship now is going to be strained because obviously he, he cheated on, on the boyfriend. So disappointing. I mean, I know it is. He could have just been by, he could have just been by. <laughs> well, and I, that is obviously is true, but seriously, it's like, she didn't actually see anything. She, you know, clearly she's putting together that he's a weirdo and his house reeks and blah, blah, blah. But he could have just let her go. I just think it's hilarious that he didn't. He's just like Franco, you know? <laughs> Could have just let him go. But no, I just had to keep killing. That's right. Anyway, I it's it's I'm I'm sorry you guys didn't uh didn't find as much to admire about the cannibal man as me, but I, I feel like it's it's the obviously the title, as Kyle you said, it, it gives you an idea that what you're gonna get is something completely different. But yeah, I, I love it. I, th- I think it's great. And I, I think too, for for being what it came out in 1973, and I feel like it, it has a lot to say. And it is obviously, as we, we touched on, it's, it's more than just some dude, you know, murdering people. He's murdering people because he has to. There is stuff I did like in it. I, I think as it went on, it got better. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, I really like the last scene in the guy's apartment when he tells him that he's seen him do the murder and stuff. And there was like a line where he said, we like to eat the meat, but not prepare it. Which I'm yeah. sure plays into mm-hmm. whatever subtext where it's kind of like the upper class is willing to, is not willing to kill, but they'll eat the meat that someone else kills. So they, they're not going to get their hands dirty kind of thing. And I like yeah. the song at the end. Yeah, it sounded like, a, even my wife said something about it, it sounded like Tarantino. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, uh, I will go off of what you're saying, Kyle. But there is a there's a article on feminism. It's it's talking about kind of veganism, feminism. What they say they go into that same thing that you were just talking about, where we've kind of gotten to a point where nobody wants to say 
the flesh of an animal or you're killing an animal. It's, oh, this is meat. And it's a word used to kind of separate people from recognizing that an animal was slaughtered to be consumed, right. I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a way to like rationalize it and compartmentalize it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those people never talk about the fact that animals eat other animals. Just that out there. Um, they, they do not. <laughs> Speaking of animals, though, too, that opening scene in the slaughterhouse was just ridiculous, man. It was almost like, okay, that's enough of that. Yeah. It goes, yeah, it does go a little bit too long. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. And yep. I feel like that really throws you off, too, because you cannibal man, then you get that scene where you're like, oh, shit. Because I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be like... <laughs> I'm going to not want to eat my lunch. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah. <laughs> Here at Bloodhound Picks, the podcast, we're going to start using little interludes where we will discuss recent horror-related content that we've been viewing, and this is outside of cinema. It could either be books, art, music. So as I force Kyle and Josh to, as I talk about him a lot, someone that's big right now and slowly really growing for international audiences is Junji Ito, who is a manga artist mainly known for, there's Uzumaki, there's Tomi, he's done a lot of work. He's kind of, in a way, been comparable to the Japanese version of Stephen King. Even though Junji Ito is basically all a lot of body horror elements, but taking kind of something that almost seems silly at first or seems very mundane and then turning it very twisted. What's considered his masterpiece is Uzumaki, and I'll give kind of a brief synopsis of that. In this town, these people start becoming obsessed with spirals. For about half of the book, I would say, it's very episodic of here's how the spiral affected this person and this guy that decides he wants to start rolling his body into a spiral and putting himself in containers or snail people or I don't know. It gets it seems weird. And if I talk try to explain it as I am now, it's incredibly silly saying it, but then you read it and it's very haunting. <laughs> I don't know how he does it, but it is. So that's Uzumaki, but he actually does best with his shorts, in my opinion. And so I'll talk about Glyceride. And this is a short that's off of, I believe it was in a collection of, you can find it in Shivers, I want to say. I apologize if I'm wrong, but since I've been reading so many of his lately that, yeah, I believe it's that. The synopsis is that this girl and her family live above the barbecue restaurant that her father owns. And the shop and the restaurant, they're all cov it's covered with oil and grease. Even the air is heavy with grease. And they're just kind of everything basically deals with grease to the point that she finds her brother, he even drinks it and he starts chugging grease, which is weird enough. And he starts growing um, as he's getting older and going through puberty and getting acne. It's heightened because of all of this grease <laughs> to the point where there's just pimples all over himself. And there are almost more like cysts, like instead of just regular pimples. And it's, he's covered in them. His father becomes obsessed with the grease too. He decides after the brother passes away, trying not to give too much, that the greasy meat sells very well. And the father then decides that his own meat would sell very well and his daughter's meat would sell very well. 
if they just start drinking more of the grease. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. Again, it's ridiculous to think that there's a whole horror story that's kind of just based around grease. But yeah, it's out there. And normally for me, reading a comic, there's always that separation where for horror comics, like it's not ever necessary. It can't really get you with a jump scare. But reading that, it is gag worthy. And it is just this comic and it's in black and white, which is weird enough. I don't know. I would like to hear what you guys thought about it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I You recommended it before. So this is my second time looking at it. But I do agree. I think the grease is palpable in some weird way it's captured very well, but I think it's, I just think it's interesting because he's covering like somewhat untapped aspects of like puberty. Cause the, the brothers like drinking grease and getting all these weird zits and stuff. And he, he manages to make that stuff kind of creepy, but obviously that stuff's all universal because we all go through puberty and changes and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I liked it a lot. I think it's just very original. Josh, did you read it? Ah, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Well, you should check it out. It's only like, you can watch the thing on YouTube. That's why my mic was muted. Oh, well. There we go. Um, so I didn't, I just read it both times. So Kyle, I know you watched it. Yeah. Um, how did it play? Because I know Ito, his work has been kind of talked about where even going to animation instead of away from the manga for some reason it loses something it was fine so this wasn't an animation though it was like uh like a motion comic or what yeah it was like a motion comic so it wasn't i wouldn't think that it was that much different um so it was okay but i could see where from what you said and from what i've read about him it's paced in such a way that he what he does is take the print format and find a way so that like when you turn to the next page (laughs) would be kind of the jump scare the reveal of something and that's like where the effectiveness lies and is not, you know, well translated, I guess. I have more stuff on it though. Yeah. If you want. Like, because I thought look. the Mount Fuji, which you see at the beginning, is like a pimple. Symbol, yeah. <laughs> like a giant pimple. And I also thought it was interesting that, like, the brother drinking grease could also be like a metaphor for like alcoholism or any kind of mm-hmm. addiction. And you have the father literally like living off the flesh of his children. I don't know. There's a lot of interesting. And I think it's what's interesting to note too. And I kind of talked about this before the, we started recording, but so what's kind of common with a lot of Western directors, writers, whoever, if you ask them what their inspiration was, a lot of times it will go to another movie that they saw or another book that they read. In that sense, I know it's probably the same for even myself, but with him, he notes most of his stuff. His inspiration comes from being a dental hygienist. Again, is kind of one of these very mundane jobs when you think about it, but is also dental work is gross in its own way and it's sadistic and scary as Cal, we talked about beforehand. It's sadistic. Um, I'm a huge Cronenberg fan, as these two know, but I will say that his use of body horror is, in terms of originality, really nobody can be compared to it. That even when he's off or not, you know, with one of his weaker stories, it's still somehow demented and very creepy. So I'm a huge fan. I'm hoping that we do a, we're going to try and do a bigger one later on, on just all Junji Ito stuff. But then Josh has to watch or read it. Read it. <laughs> I don't read. <laughs> That's a lie. Okay. <laughs>
So for our next segment, a movie only a mother could love, we are discussing Toby Hooper's Spontaneous Combustion from 1990. And just a brief synopsis here before I get into it. So it's about a young man who finds out that his parents have been used in an atomic weapons experiment shortly before his birth and that the results have had some unexpected effects on him, i.e. spontaneous <laughs> human combustion. So I want to discuss this movie because it's crazy as hell, but also uh, and not that great, but I think Brad Dorif is amazing in it. So it's just this bizarre ass movie where it just nothing really works, and yet this dude is giving an amazing performance and making and, and pulling off this just making you believe that he can start people on fire, which I don't even know how you do that, but he makes it believable. I kind of want to hear what your guys' impressions of this. Do I go yeah. first, Josh? Yeah, I, I can I can give it a give it a go. Yeah, this movie was I, I I don't know if I should be admitting this or not, considering what we're doing. But I didn't even know this existed, which, you know, I don't know. Shit's bound to fall through the cracks at some point. But I thought I, I liked it. And, and the first thing I thought when it was over was, thank God. But also it it was definitely a toby hooper movie i feel like the reason being is because you know it was generally just kind of nutty like literally everything about it even when it wasn't necessarily trying to be and it didn't really work i don't know that it really pulled off what it was trying to but goddamn if he wasn't gonna try so yeah i i mean i i thought it was great and especially not i didn't want to i didn't want to know anything about it so, you know, seeing what it took takes 20 minutes or whatever for Brad Dorf to show up. So that was a nice surprise. And and John Landis gets fucking killed. So Yeah, that was this, gonna say, you're welcome, guys. Yeah, um, <laughs> this is definitely one of my favorite things that we've done. No, probably get a lot of flack for saying this. I respect everything he's done, and I know like he's had a lot of mon- monumental work, but there's just something about Toby Hooper work that like 90% of it does not work to me where I just like I don't know there's life that's force. true yeah <laughs> have you seen life force yes <laughs> did you like life force all of it and I think this goes with spontaneous combustion where you got into this too Josh where it seems like it was a very grand idea that yes. was meant to be something way better but something along the line or I don't even know our budget or whatever left it to like that's just kind of this crazy thing that it is now that's kind of how I see most of his stuff I definitely agree in this case yeah. I don't I feel like life force is more I feel like it's pretty successful I know Life Force wasn't that supposed to be a. You were talking about planning to be an Oscar-worthy movie or something. Yes, but that's yeah. because Canon was delusional. Yeah, I mean, but it wasn't a budget like it had yeah. a huge budget. It was like the I think the biggest budget that Canon ever had. Okay. And he did use like, you know, state-of-the-art special effects for the time. I was gonna say Life Force to me looks expensive. Yeah. Whereas spontaneous combustion doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I'll give it to Brad Dorf. He um no matter what he's in, he sells it. You gotta give him that much. But yeah, I think and I, once we go into the the script more, hopefully I'm proven right. But a lot of it felt like it should have been like a two hour movie or something. Or something that it feels like there was a lot more to it that just kind of fell through the cracks and Yeah, there wasn't a ton cut out, but there was some stuff cut here and there and there was <laughs> 
there was definitely subtext of uh, more subtext about people protesting the nuclear like <laughs> react power plant and kind of underlying all the stuff that was going on. And I agree. I mean, I think that's part of my fascination with the movie too, is it seems like there's interesting potential in some of the ideas and the themes and the character to me, it's, uh, it's sound like fucking ridiculous because this is spontaneous combustion, but I see the kind of seeds of like Greek tragedy because it's this character who did, never knew his family and yet has this kind of like curse given from his parents. And there's a lot of like Oedipus and Prometheus in there. And that's as, <laughs> that's as crazy as I'm going to get. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely just seems like it's grand. It's supposed to be so much more grand. And then it just looks cheap. Like there's, <laughs> there's sets that look like a set, like a shitty set. <laughs> what is this? this just looks like garbage. <laughs> Well, I didn't know. I didn't notice that. When name one, I feel that way about the 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 guy's mansion at the end. Oh um, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Very- it, but and <laughs> and like his girlfriend's apartment kind of feels like a set. I don't know. But I mean, you can tell because it's like everything's a little bit too wide for all the equipment <laughs> and shit. And you're like, yeah, this kind of looks like not right. Got to be well, able to move all that shit around. I feel like they bring her, there are hints, but then I, I get the conspiracy that she has to kind of watch him, the the girlfriend. But then it's like, oh, she's actually one of him as well, or one of the atomic people. And yeah, it feels like, like a, yeah, a lot of thrown in where it's like, uh, yeah, let's do that. That's good. Well, and it feels but, like a lot of unimpactful reveals where you're like, that should be like, we're hit in the gut. His girlfriend isn't, you know? And it just happens, and you're like, okay. Yeah. It really lands, I don't know. To the point that he disappears into a whatever white circle, and he takes her spontaneous combustion. He takes her from her curse, (laughs) Craig. And he essentially, I guess, is... I've read the script, so I I know what shit's supposed to mean, and then you see it poorly done. (laughs) He's supposed to be, like, returning all the way to the center of the earth or some shit like that. Okay. Like, the core... I don't know. Because, yeah, that makes sense. Hey, you know. They should have went with, like, Lawnmower Man thing or something where he just ascends to going to a grid or something. That's what it felt like. (laughs) That's kind of what was... I don't know how much it ended up in the movie now because I can't remember, the like, the differences. But in the script, that was, like, kind of what happened where he's, like, he was, like, in the phone and he was in the power lines. And it was almost... Which kind of didn't make sense because it's spontaneous combustion, not electricity. I was going to say, so he's like, now he's fucking ripping off Shocker. No one rips (laughs) off Shocker. Yes. Well. It came out the same year, didn't it? 90? No, it was. Shocker was before. Yeah. And better. And definitely better. Shocker's one of the best (laughs) movies ever made. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. We'll all agree to disagree on that. So. Yes. I just I just want I just thought of this, so I just wanted to say it before I forget. So you, you guys you know, you guys are talking about Brad Dorff and at least for him, you know, he always brings it no matter what he's doing, right? And I thought he I thought he was good in, in spontaneous combustion, but there was one scene that I don't know if I was miss watching something, but it was almost like laughably bad 
and it was due to Brad Dorif's acting. And it was the scene, hopefully you guys remember this. It was the scene where he was in the car with his girlfriend, I'm almost positive. And there's a giant exposition dump where she's telling him all this and that, and that, you know, just it, that's all it is, is exposition dumping. And his reaction to what she's saying, you know, it was something like, what? No way. <laughs> You know, and it was like, it it was like he was overdoing it to a certain degree, but it was just like, oh my God, that was the worst thing I've seen Brad Dorif ever do. I kind of agree. I I remember the scene. It does feel weird. And it, part of it is like, is it that unbelievable? I don't know. She's just like, yeah, your parents, I heard your parents burned. And he's like, what? (laughs) Who would give you that idea? It's like, right. And that's exactly what. Yeah, and that's exactly part of it is for sure is that I don't know why you're taking this shit like she's fucking speaking a different language because, (laughs) I mean, you were going to figure this out eventually anyway. And yeah, I don't think it was that big of a a stretch. I don't think so either. Yeah, It must have been all the exposition dumping that he was freaking out about. Well, that happens throughout. There's every couple of scenes, it seems like there was an exposition. Yeah, there was. There definitely was. That's where it really feels influenced by like theater to me. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's maybe where they're coming from. And it does not work. Like, cause that first, (laughs) the first time it happens, you, uh, he's like, what? They, he, that woman died that's a friend of his mm-hmm. that you never see on screen. So you're like, who the fuck are they even talking about? Like, oh my God. Yeah. You hear Amy Whitaker died and you're like, what? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, who the fuck is that? Are we getting like, and then you never know. And it's like, okay, why the fuck was that in there? Yeah. And it's like implied that it was his fault because they had an argument and, but we never saw this. Yeah. Right. So out of left field. And that happens a lot through the movie, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. I do think the uh, opening. And the kind of satire of the 1950s and mm-hmm. uh, t- like uh, atomic bomb and stuff. I think that's actually maybe the best, the most consistent, like most well done section of the movie altogether, probably. And Dick Butkus. Yeah, you got to get Dick Butkus. In there. I was like, why the fuck is Dick Butkus in this movie? And Dick Butkus was like, why the fuck am I in this movie? I know. And it's like, is it, is it, is it because he looks like, you know, a general army guy and it's like, yep, that's what he's going to do. I think so. I mean, he looks the part. He definitely does. And he never show. you know, he's in like two scenes and he never, never is important again. Ever. Yeah. Not at all. What else was I going to bring up? The spontaneous combustion expert guy, that old guy, after mm-hmm. his parents burn up is uh, another cameo that's Andre de Toth who is like a film mm-hmm. noir director but he also directed uh, the original House of Wax okay mm. oh wow. so that's kind of cool and that that was a part that I felt like was better kind of in it, he had a longer speech in the script where he was talking about people in like you know the 1700s experiencing essentially spontaneous combustion but how they like uh, ascribed it to like a religious thing or whatever which was actually one of the more interesting parts to even have to do with spontaneous combustion, I guess. Did you guys notice Toby Hooper in the movie? I did, in the bathroom, mm-hmm. smoking the cigar, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was Craig's favorite part, he told me. Yeah. And so I just love that guy's movies. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he put John Landis in there and killed the motherfucker, so. Yeah. Yes. Which is one of the best parts. It yeah. is, especially too, as, as you know, Brad Dorff just wants to talk to that doctor. And of course, Landis is going to be a dick about it. <laughs> I know he's such a dick. Yeah. <laughs> he 
deserves every moment of his death. <laughs> what I don't get, though, is that for the spontaneous combustion, so he's near some people or he can go through the phone, but then there's some people that die after dealing with him like later. So there's yeah, the Amy, then there's the doctor, uh, Mr. or Dr. Simpson. Or Simpson. There is that yeah. like static, or, like whatever, but yeah, it does seem like, okay, why? Why? Yeah. Why would yeah, they're die right then. The rules are just non-existent for the shit. Yeah, that's the weirdest part too, is like the rules don't make sense. So there's no stakes. But it, they're also trying to do that really hard thing because it's like because essentially the protagonist is the antagonist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you're supposed to be like scared of him, but scared for him. Kind of yeah. Like, it doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of shit that doesn't work. Like the birthmark thing? <laughs> yeah, that... You know, again, it's like, okay, so why is it fucking growing? Right? Well, well the... that's... I'm okay with it. It looks like shit, though. It definitely looks like shit. <laughs> and in the script, it's described as, like, looking like a tattoo. Well, fuck, he even says that. Yeah, which it doesn't, though. It doesn't no, it doesn't at all. Makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't look like a tattoo it at fucking look like all. Subtle at all. Well, there's a scene. There's a scene too that in the beginning where he gets the package or the the birthday present where it's not there. It's like really quick cut, but he goes to reach, and I was sitting there watching it. Going, Wait, I thought his the birthmark was on the hand. The makeup lady took the day off. Yeah, either that or it it was shrinking at one point too. <laughs> Maybe you're being generous. Well, I mean, you know, might as well throw that in there. Yes. <laughs> um, there was a section of the script that was cut out where he vomits molten chunks. And I just want to throw that in there because you all guys know how much I love vomit. Yeah. So I missed that moment. Yeah. You bring that back. Well, he vomits fire, kind of, or something, but yet his face is intact. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, iffy logic. Yeah. You know what I do think is actually kind of scary? was the idea it happens like once or twice where like he has that like fire coming out of his arm and she puts the arm in the bathtub and the mm-hmm. water is like making it worse yeah <laughs> yeah again idea yeah again it was like uh why yeah yeah no shit it's like what okay how does that work i don't know but she said it so it must be true <laughs> I, it is it's <laughs> apparently all true yeah so it's kind of a failure but it's an interesting <laughs> failure but it is, it, it's also kind of interesting, though, because I think this is probably the only horror movie I can think of, unless you guys can think of others, that deals with spontaneous combustion at all. Yeah, I don't know of a single one. Right? Yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything. If, and again, that, I feel like that's a Hooper thing. Yes, I'm sure, <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, if anybody listening can think of something, yeah, please send know. us in. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, I guess that's all I really have to say. If we... Uh, <laughs> If if you guys can stand a screenplay uh, <laughs> exploration, <laughs> otherwise it's just gonna be me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's an I think it's an interesting movie to see. It's disappointing, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it, I enjoyed it. It just again, it's, it's there's just so many like fucking head scratching moments where you're just like, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you basically never know what the fuck is going on. You yeah, you don't. I mean, at least it's not boring. This is true. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a hell of a lot of neon. Like, yeah. her friend's yeah. apartment was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on in there. She's like, her phone was. Phone. Yeah, and what the fuck was with that phone? Yeah. It was a neon phone. <laughs> it was 80s as fuck. Uh, it was know. definitely, yeah. He did not want to get out of the fucking 80s for sure. 
Who could blame him? Look what the world's become. (laughs) So I'm going to highlight another horror thing outside the cinema briefly, which is uh, an artist who I found on Instagram, but Mm -hmm. was far better than that. Anyways, it's this Polish artist, Zadislaw Baczynski, but he does this really weird art. It's almost reminiscent of Prometheus, the movie, but he did this art before then, so screw that movie. But it's very, it's, it's described as like surrealist dystopia, but it'll be kind of like that where it's, it's very like, like big skeletal structures or people in kind of like a weird desert ominous gloomy landscape very interesting stuff and i found out that del toro guillermo del toro is actually a big fan it's worth checking out i don't know i thought it was kind of like inspirational art to look at borderline kind of horror more maybe surrealist but very very dark stuff oh i thought his work was really interesting from what you showed me kyle and if and we'll write down his name in the show notes so that anybody interested can check him out yeah check it out (laughs) okay so since we dealt with something old an older obscure movie with cannibal man we're looking at something new the el duce tapes so i'll just read the summary that i found between appearing in supporting roles in general hospital and local tv commercials ryan sexton spent the early 90s documenting the life and art of el duce the lead singer of the notorious shock rock band the mentors famous for taking the stage in a black executioner hoods the band spent a few moments in the national spotlight after some of their most offensive lyrics were denounced on the floor of the u.s senate so the, the mentors themselves, they were shock rock, but El Duce claimed it to be rape rock. And a lot of their lyrics dealt with saying things that were kind of encouraging rape. So the whole documentary deals with the idea of was this just like a performance art piece and he was being this kind of over-the-top character or was he well I mean the answer is clear that he really had some issues but was there more kind of truth to it than he kind of intended or however you want to go about it so the mentors they they started in the in 1976 and they had a little bit of a height in the 80s but then this documentary kind of went through in the 90s for a couple of years and what's interesting about the documentary is there's no interviews or anything looking at it from today's standards. It's purely all footage that Ryan Sexton got, or there's a, there's a famous Jerry Springer episode. It's all footage from that time period. And there's no kind of narrator. Like every once in a while, some text will appear on screen. They'll kind of fill in some of the blanks in between. But basically, you're watching this man who's either all a big joke or it's not. And he's just slowly, he's an alcoholic and he's slowly getting worse and worse. And that is primarily it. El Duce, he did end up dying 
the early 90s, pretty much right after this was over. He was killed by a train after drinking. They don't know if it was that he was just drunk and he fell asleep on the tracks, if it was suicide, if it was whatever. But I'll let you two get into it too, because we actually reviewed this for BFI London Festival. We rated it pretty high. It was Even though we only did a couple for that festival, you can find it on the Ginger Nuts of Horror. We all kind of enjoyed it as much as you can, I think. You really can't enjoy it because it is, no matter your viewpoint, it's either very sick or it's heartbreaking or it's a mixture of both. And yes. you guys, yeah. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. But I think they made, I mean, it seemed clear to me that he, it was all kind of an act. So it was more heartbreaking to watch this guy like deteriorate. But it was also really interesting to step back in that time compared to now when they're trying to demonize certain forms of media as the cause of social problems which we're trying to do again now which is total fucking bullshit well um, it, it does that's the only thing the only new imagery or the only new content is at the very end it throws in certain songs like the the robin thick hip-hop oh, song yeah. they did and it has trump speaking or stuff like that so it shows some footage at the like very end to kind of show you I guess, a modern juxtaposition of it. Yeah, a little bit. But I mean, it really brings to the fore that discussion of uh, the effect of media like on people and whether whether even his pretending to be this person has some sort of negative effect on people or whatever, his pretending to espouse these like sexist, rapist, racist views, which I mean, he's clearly just drumming up for like publicity for his band. But which is, I think... I mean, I think it's a good discussion to have because we couldn't even have this discussion now. That's the crazy part is like to see that guy on Jerry Springer in like the late 80s, early 90s saying the things that he's saying. If he did that now, he'd be fucking killed like the next day. He said some horrible stuff too. You can find it on YouTube if you just look up Jerry Springer, El Duce, where there's a mother that talks about it's going to start getting not safe for work. <laughs> a mother that gets... Oh, was yeah. gang raped and he starts making fun of her yeah <laughs> and but i mean i think that's look the views that he's like espousing are terrible but we have a first amendment right to say what the fuck you want and if you say that and someone punches you in the face you probably deserve it <laughs> but it is it's really interesting to look at today because it's stuff that our world some of the people in our world would not even be able to stomach hearing this guy say this and it's i don't know i don't know that that's a good thing I think you have to be able to hear everybody and, and react somewhat reasonably. But so anyways, as you can see, it's a very like interesting documentary to watch and discuss. There's a lot to unpack there. Josh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't know that El Duce or the mentors were a thing and certainly not whatever fucking stupid name, you know, subgenre that they created, uh, which, you know, I like some fucking harsh shit, but I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it just, it was great to see that, you know, this dude clearly was just, it, it, I, what it reminded me of was like professional wrestling in that, you know, he's this character that says and does all this offensive shit, but if he's just 
sitting at his house by himself. He's not going to be doing any of the shit. He doesn't believe in it, you know, which it was interesting to see that the motherfucker just would, did not hold anything back. And it was done to get the reaction that he got from people. And I think that Jerry Springer thing, probably the best example of seeing every person in that audience wanted to fucking kill that guy, you know, but that's what, that's exactly what he was going for. So it, it was interesting to, especially not knowing that the mentors was a band or there's kind of brand of bullshit that they, that they preach. Well, I guess it was mostly just El Duce. None of the other guys were that stupid. Yeah, but um, His bassist was a, it's pretty much his oldest friend who was a member kind of said that he didn't, he just played with him because he was his friend or something. He didn't agree with. Right. The guy that, a... that guy that was like the most normal person on the planet. Yeah. But then you even, for people that are fans of it, you get to see old interviews of Guar where they're talking about him. Guar is famous for wearing the all the kind of monster outfits and they spray blood into the audience and they do it. They still perform to this day. And it was weird, speaking of Guar, seeing Dave Brocky in there, <laughs> considering he's passed away too. Yeah. I mean, I will probably give some sort of disclosure. You do see El Duce, yeah, his on several occasions. And you see uh, sad genitalia. By the end, that's where it gets kind of sad is that as this alcoholism is really, I mean, the whole thing probably can be, but is really taking over. There's a scene that isn't done by Ryan Sexton. That was just kind of some guys filming it for fun. He's three sheets to the wind and they're picking him up and his pants are down and, he's, and you see it all and he's just he, incoherent basically. And I think that's one of the last pieces of footage of him before, I want to say, in the movie. I think that was the last piece, yeah. And he's totally obliterated. And it's sad because you... You've seen him play the heel, but you also know like he doesn't really believe it. He's just doing whatever he could to, to have some kind of, you know, musical career, I guess. It's sad because you see that guy just destroyed it, and these people who don't probably know him very well don't give a shit about him, and he's just like, all his friends are gone, and, <laughs> you know, it's tragic. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not very uplifting. Not like sp- spontaneous combustion. <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, that movie, True Love Prevails. Yeah. He sucks the fire from his woman's uh, bosom (laughs) and melts into the earth. Was that like the first CGI fucking whatever the hell that was? I don't know. There was a lot of bad effects in there. There were some fucking awful ones. And it was actually... There were. I was going to say there... Yeah, like the stuff, some of the fire shit that they did, like, especially with it, like, being on people, didn't yeah. look that bad. And they would, yeah, and then, like, five seconds later, you'd have, you'd see the worst effect ever. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, they had the, the action movie opening, almost, where it was, like, every time a credit would appear, oh, yeah. there'd be the fire that would, like. <laughs> yeah, that, that opening kind of was shit. Too. Yeah. In the script, it was more cryptic. It was more like going into the bunker or something. It was something a little bit more interesting, but yeah, I'll keep defending. <laughs> Again, if anybody's interested, we did the review for Ginger Nuts of Horror for the BFI London Film Festival. Just look up Ginger Nuts of Horror and I'll do you'll see our review where we kind of go. I think a little more in depth where now we're kind of just talking about more personal, what we liked or didn't like about it, which I mean, we all pretty much liked it. And there's a general consensus on that one. Again, you can also find, we have a ton of ginger nuts of horror reviews. One is dropping. Well, by the time the podcast comes up, it'll already be there. 
but we just did one on Mark of the Beast, which is a documentary about the legacy of the Wolfman. Yes, Craig loved that one. <laughs> that has John Landis too. <laughs> But guy. unfortunately, in this one, John Landis just talks <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make just like a loop of his death for you guys to watch it over and over. Bloodhound Picks Podcast is produced by Josh Lee, Craig Dram, and Kyle Hintz. Music by Raymond Seed. Audio editing by Kyle Hintz.